The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the theoretical physicist Michio Kaku, who's here to talk about his new book, Quantum Supremacy. Uh, Professor Kaku, welcome. The thesis of your book, if I'm summarising it right, is that quantum computers, which are just now in their infancy, are going to be as transformational to the world in almost every respect as, you know, I don't know, the book, the invention of electricity, the, you know, a really game-changing technology. Can you tell me why? What is so special about quantum computers? Well, the world economy depends on computers, but computers have gone through three basic stages of evolution. The first stage was analog computers, where we computed on levers, gears, pulleys. You had to turn the crank in order to make a calculation on an analog computer. Then after World War II, we had the transistor and the digital computer that helped to win World War II with the work of Alan Turing, for example, that broke the German code. And so we had this tremendous evolution of digital technology, which we use today. It's called the digital revolution. But that's coming to a close. Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. There could be mass unemployment in the digital industry as we go to the third stage where we leave the world of digital, that is zeros and ones, zeros and ones, and enter the world of quantum, where we compute no longer on transistors, but we compute on the smallest possible unit, the atom. We're talking about an atomic computer, a computer that computes on atoms rather than transistors or levers, pulleys, and gears. And as you can imagine, that's going to affect the economy, science, uh, weather research, energy, everything. In the same way that the digital revolution changed everything, the next revolution is going to be even bigger, the quantum revolution. And the fact that we're computing on a- atoms, is there such transformation there that atoms can have more states than just naught and one? I mean, it seems to me that the, it's a sheer computing welly of these things that's that's exciting. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, what gives the power of a quantum computer that leaves a digital computer in the dust. An ordinary computer, a digital computer, computes on zeros and ones, zeros and ones. That's called a bit. If you think of an atom, it could be spin up or spin down, one or the other. So it's very crude. It's a very crude approximation to reality, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Quantum computers can compute simultaneously at all angles any combination of zeros and ones. And how many more positions are there? Infinitely more. There are infinitely more states than just zeros and ones, zeros and ones. And so that's why the digital revolution will look like an abacus. An abacus today we laugh at, but for thousands of years it was used in Asia because 
it does not have that many states to work with. Digital computers have more states, and quantum computers have the ultimate set of all possible states, all possible states of up and down and any mixture of the two, all simultaneously. And the development of quantum computers, as you say, you know, each extra transistor on a digital computer will add a certain, you know, an extra, well, I guess, power of two to its power. But with quantum computers, that scales much, much faster, doesn't it? I mean, exactly. You hit the you hit the nail on the head because the number of states determines the power of a computer. Think of an abacus. You can calculate the number of states on an abacus by looking by simply looking at it. A digital computer has a lot of states because you have zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Transistors could be on or transistors can be off. That's about it. But a quantum computer, how many states are there possible in an atom? <laughs> Infinite number. And that, mo- that then gives us a description of reality. So why is it that this is going to revolutionize medicine, biology, chemistry, because all of them require an infinite number of states given to us by electrons in an atom. And so electrons are waves. And waves in turn, how many states does a wave have? An infinite number of states. These are waves of quantum probability. That's why quantum computers, once they reach their full power, are infinitely more powerful than a digital computer. But the as far as we've got so far, if I'm understanding it, you know, the most powerful quantum computers in the world currently only have a couple of handfuls of atoms working at any given time. Is that right? And why is that? Well, it used to be a joke that people said that the world's greatest quantum computer calculation is three times five is 15. Now, school children know that three times five is 15, but that was done on atoms. Think about that. That calculation was done on atoms. Today, we no longer just have a qubit of zeros and ones. We have qubits that are called quantum bits measured in the thousands. And so we're now breaking all records. This is called quantum supremacy. Quantum supremacy is when the first quantum computer exceeds the capability of a supercomputer. And that was reached just a few years ago. And so now we're creating a new type of computer, a type of computer that will leave an ordinary digital computer in the dust. And that means that everything about the economy, medicine, warfare, everything is going to be turned upside down. Can I ask for... for you know, the the, the non-physicists among us. Is the effects of a quantum computer, as you describe it, is that it's got such a ludicrous amount of computing power and the potential to scale, you know, every time we make them a bit better, they become a lot better. But the outputs of a quantum computer that we can use, are they, if you like, quantum outputs? Are they different or do they does the quantumness effectively exist to make it powerful under the bonnet, but, you know, the car itself for humans to drive, you know, we're we're essentially getting the same sort of recognizable outputs as we would from a digital computer, just much, much, much more powerful. Well, we're talking about a qualitative leap, not just a quantitative leap. We're talking about tackling calculations that would take an infinite amount of time on a digital computer. Digital computers cannot model, for example, a simple chemical reaction. 
Chemical reactions are mediated by electrons. Electrons are described by waves. Waves are probability. Where are the zeros and ones? Zeros and ones. Nowhere to be seen. A zero and a one is an approximation, a crude approximation to a wave. And that wave is the wave of an electron. And why is that important? Because that electron gives you cancer, gives you well-being, gives you solar energy, gives you fusion power. The universe, the universe is based not on zeros and ones. The universe is based on waves, waves of probability. And only a quantum computer can compute with these waves. And so a calculation, a chemical calculation on, for example, an enzyme, would take an infinite amount of time on a digital computer. You would give up. But Mother Nature does it all the time. It's called digestion. It's called cancer. It's called well-being. Mother Nature does it all the time because Mother Nature is quantum mechanical. In some sense, the universe is, in some sense, a quantum computer. But Mother Nature is ahead of us a little way, if I'm reading your book rightly, in that Mother Nature can do this stuff at room temperature. That's embarrassing, very embarrassing. You see, why don't we have quantum computers that can outrace any computer right now, right now to do our homework, to do write books, to do all sorts of research? And the reason is you have to cool it, cool it down to near absolute zero where all the extraneous vibrations and noise are eliminated. Somebody burping, somebody jumping up and down, a car backfiring, a block away would ruin a quantum calculation. But Mother Nature, Mother Nature does photosynthesis using ordinary sunlight at room temperature. This is embarrassing. Mother Nature is a quantum physicist much with much greater power than our greatest uh, quantum computers. We're trying to catch up to Mother Nature. Do you th- are you confident we'll get there? As you set out, there are lots of different ways in which people are trying to solve this problem. Yes, there are several ways of doing it. The Chinese are one of the leaders in this technology. They use laser beams and optical frequencies. They use light beams, light beams that can also have a zeros and one in terms of how they spin, but anything in between zeros and ones. We do it using electrons in circuits. That's what IBM, Google, Honeywell, we use circuits based on electrons. So there's a race, a race, and who knows who's going to win the race with the Chinese betting on photons, that is particles of light, while in the United States, we're betting on electrons to do our calculations. Mother Nature, of course, uses both. Sunlight creates photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is the basis of all life on the planet Earth. And photosynthesis is a quantum mechanical calculation. Now, the point you've just made about there being a race going on gives an extra sort of geopolitical tweak to your title, this question of quantum supremacy. You know, who's going to get there first? Because the the body of your book is sort of saying, look, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years into the future, you know, we could have, using quantum computers, solved all these human problems. But... It feels like you sort of jump over a little bit the suggestion, which is quite alarming to most of us, that before we get to modelling organic chemistry and quantum computers, we'll have to deal with the fact that their brute force power is going to make all of our existing encryption, on which rest 
all sorts of national military secrets, the banking system, you know, you name it. it it'll make them available to being kind of cracked brute force um, by the, the, if you like, market leaders in quantum computing. I mean, that's quite a big hurdle to get over, isn't it? Yes. What branch of the government is most interested in advancements in this technology? It's the CIA. And why is that? Because of the fact that quantum computers are so powerful that they can break, in principle, any digital code created by any bank or intelligence agency. The crown jewels, the crown jewels of any government are the military secrets. And quantum computers, in principle, can crack any codes that nations use to hide their crown jewels. Therefore, the CIA has already begun to issue statements. Uh, in the United States, government agencies are beginning to issue statements saying, be prepared. Start to make changes now in your behavior, because when this revolution is in full blast, it means that all your secrets can be read by your next door neighbor. And so that's one of the drawbacks of this technology. So what are we doing? The government has issued guidelines, guidelines saying that we're not there yet. We're not there at the point where we have to worry about this technology every day, but it's coming. So you have to relay the groundwork. You have to, first of all, create new codes that are more complicated than the codes of today. But eventually, they too will be broken. And then some people are saying, maybe we should use quantum to defeat quantum. That is, have a two-tiered internet. One internet based on digital that can be broken, but another internet based on laser beams. Laser beams with, with an internet that can never be broken by the laws of the quantum theory. So we're using quantum to defeat quantum. And so that is another idea being kicked around to have a dual internet, one internet that can never be broken because it's all based on laser beams and the, and the quantum principle, and the other one we use, you and me, that can be broken uh, if you have a powerful enough quantum computer. But doesn't that, I mean, A, that would imply an extraordinary degree of international cooperation in what's effectively an arms race. And B, doesn't it then imply a, a, all sorts of civilizational problems with a kind of two-tier system? I mean, I'm saying if you get, say, whichever first mover, which presumably in the private sector will include all manner of bad actors and in the public sector will, will be governments, gets a decisive quantum advantage, there's not really time, is there, for, you know, they're, say they're however many qubits ahead. They've got a stable quantum computer. They're rivals be those civilians the bad actors wish to rob or rival governments whose secrets this quantum supreme government you know wishes to extract you know if your quantum computer is less good than theirs they're going to be able to break through even your quantum encryption aren't they well that's why we have to use the quantum principle to be refined and advanced enough to guarantee the fact that it can detect problems with uh, somebody bugging your quantum computer. So here's how it works. A photon has a polarization. We know that in your glasses, your glasses are polarized. A polarized lens screens out the wrong polarization. That's why you don't get sunburn in your eyes on a bright day. So your glasses are polarized in one direction. As soon as somebody tinkers with your glasses, 
that have laser beams, it alters the direction of the polarization. Boom! That can be detected instantly. And so it is instantaneously possible to detect when somebody is tampering with your quantum network. And that's why we think that eventually the internet will have to go laser. It'll have to be done by laser beams because by looking at the change in the direction of the polarization, immediately you know that somebody is trying to hack into your system and then you can take safeguards to kick them out. So sort of tripwires are available at least. Yeah, that's right. And remember, this is not today. We're talking about 10, 15 years in the future when quantum computers are so powerful they can break any code. And then, of course, the CIA has a nervous breakdown trying to figure out all the different ways we can use the quantum principle to defeat the quantum principle. Yeah, well, I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. The other, the other of the risks, and sorry if I sound like such a downer, but we will get on to the amazing rewards. I'm wondering how seriously you take the anxieties that some people, I mean, most famously probably the philosopher Nick Bostrom, about the dangers of artificial general intelligence and the so-called control problem, i.e. that, you know, once something passes a sort of liftoff velocity of learning power, it will bootstrap itself to superhuman levels of intelligence very, very fast and controlling it becomes hard. Presumably with quantum computing, that acceleration becomes just even more dizzying, doesn't it? How worried are you about that aspect? Uh, well, let's be real. In terms of comp comparing an animal to our most advanced robots, if you take a military robot and put it in the forest, what does a military robot do in a forest? It falls over. It can't even, it can't even walk in a forest. It falls over. You take a bug and put it in the forest. It can find mates, find food, find shelter, run away from predators. Uh, bugs can immediately adapt to a forest. And so you begin to realize that we got a long ways to go before we have Terminator-type killer robots uh, that can seek out and hunt humans. But eventually, they'll be as smart as a mouse. Eventually, they'll be smart as a rabbit. And then as smart as a dog or a cat. And I think by the end of the century, they'll have computing power sufficient so that they'll be as smart as a monkey. Now, at that point, they are potentially dangerous because monkeys know they are not human. Monkeys know that they are monkeys. Now, dogs, however, are confused. Dogs think that we are a dog. That's why they obey us. We're the top dog and they're the underdog. And so that's why dogs are not a threat, because they're confused. They think that we are a dog. But monkeys, once we have robots as smart as a monkey, they have self-awareness. They know who they are. They, see, robots today do not know they are robots. You can talk to our most advanced robot and ask them, are you a robot? They don't know. But monkeys will know. At that point, they are potentially dangerous. And I think we should put a chip in their brain to shut them off if they have murderous thoughts, because it will come, but not for a while, not for many decades. Oh, good. You, um, do, do you keep dogs or monkeys yourself? Uh, no, <laughs> Is that I a don't. partisan of the dog? But it's amazing that uh, monkeys are self-aware. They know they are monkeys. They are self-aware. Dogs are at that point where they're still confused as to whether or not they are a dog or a, or a human. But monkeys have no, no doubts at all. Now, to move on to looking at what you're 
you see the greatest advantages of quantum computing being. I was intrigued that the first things you lit on were things that, you know, seemed quite analog in their way. I mean, they're not analog in their underlying structure, but, you know, doing organic chemistry, figuring out how to solve the fixing of nitrogen from ammonia or photosynthesis or whatever. What what was it that, that made you jump onto those examples first? Well, let's do the easy ones first, and then we'll get into the harder problems. The easy problems is chemical reactions that elude us today, but a quantum computer may be able to unravel because we're using a quantum device to unravel a quantum process. The most famous of them is a new green revolution. You know, before around the time of World War I, chemists were able to mass produce nitrogen that is fixed in fertilizer, artificial fertilizer. You realize that about 50% of the population of the earth is dependent upon this green revolution, but it's coming to, a, it's coming to an end. And that's why we need a second green revolution to decode the process of taking nitrogen from the air, fixing it in terms of fertilizer. And that's what we're using. One of the first applications of quantum computers will be to create a second green revolution for the population of the world. Another possibility is solar power. Why don't we have solar cells everywhere giving us an answer to the energy problem? And the answer is uh, quite simple. Solar cells do not obey Moore's law. We're spoiled by Moore's law. The computer power doubles every 18 months. Solar cells do not double in power every 18 months. And that's why we need a super battery. That's the weak link, the battery. We forget that. We think it's a solar cell. No, it's the battery that does not obey Moore's law. And that's where we can use supercomputers to solve that problem. And then we have medical problems like Alzheimer's disease. Just recently, we figured out that the reason why amyloid proteins do not gum up everyone's brain, it gums up some brains, but not every brain, is that there are at least two kinds of amyloid proteins, depending upon how they spin, about whether they twist to the right or whether they twist to the left. We didn't know that. And that's one of the reasons why you can have a gummed up brain and be totally clear thinking, and other people have a little bit of gum in their brain and they have Alzheimer's. This means that we may be on the, on the verge of being able to cure Alzheimer's disease because we didn't realize that there are at least two types of amyloid proteins at the molecular level. And that's where quantum computers come in. These are quantum mechanical devices. They live in a quantum world. And as a consequence, they may be able to eliminate the bad amyloid protein, leaving the good amyloid protein there, solving the, uh, the crisis that will befall humanity when there's a crisis in Alzheimer's disease. So these are just a taste of what's coming in the near future, the near future. And it's the ability to model actual chemical reactions. So I think I was fascinated by you saying, you know, at the moment, the way we make new batteries is just really kind of trial and error. That's right. Same thing with drugs. How do we find new drugs? By trial and error. We forget that. There's no systematic way to find drugs. This is where quantum computers comes in, using the power of the quantum to unravel a quantum process so that we have a rule by which we can create new drugs, new therapies, new ways of generating energy. 
Now, in the first part of your book, you do talk about how we arrived. You know, you you retell the story of the arrival of the Copenhagen interpretation and about the the rise of these extraordinary men who turned poor old Einstein on his head, or at least developed his theory in a in an alarming and strange way. And I'm interested in the kind of your sense of the characters of these scientists and the sense of what it is that that drives them, because they're all very. I mean, you've known some of them. I mean, you knew Feynman, and you—I believe—you worked with with Stephen Hawking. But their relationships with each other interest me as well. Because the, is there a sort of thing of hero worship and trying to, if you like, kind of catch up to the likes of Einstein, or is there a sort of Oedipal kill the father thing? I'm thinking of that sort of Einstein bore debate and that sort of thing. Well, one thing when you encounter these individuals is that you have to throw away common sense. Everything you thought you know about the world is actually wrong. You have to talk to individuals who are willing to open their minds to the impossible. Everybody knows that you can't be two places at the same time, okay? Ever since we were children, we were told you cannot be two places at the same time. Actually, at the quantum level, you can be an infinite number of places at the same time. Why is it that quantum computers have so much power? Because they compute on parallel universes. Now, this is something straight out of Spider-Man and Marvel comics. And we know that Marvel comics live in the multiverse. Spider-Man has many enemies in different universes, and there are different versions of Spider-Man in different universes. But it's based on the quantum principle. Why are quantum computers so powerful? Because they compute not in just one universe, but in an infinite number of universes. In fact, the Oscars were dominated by a movie that is, that is set in the multiverse. And so the intuition is thrown out the window. You have to open your eyes to new possibilities that even Einstein thought was totally crazy. Einstein had a quote, and his quote was, the more successful the quantum theory becomes, the sillier it looks. <laughs> and it's absolutely true. It's a silly theory, but get used to it. That's the way the world runs. The world is quantum mechanical, independent of your classical mind. The world can be many places at the same time. Did it strike you as intriguing as it did me that, you know, Niels Bohr made one of the great leaps into the counterintuitive, you know, this crazy, strange quantum world. And yet when whoever it made a, a further leap and was taken to meet Niels Bohr, when whoever it said, look, how about we don't have this funny you know, barrier between the bigger world and the quantum world, but the wave function doesn't have to collapse. It's just happening everywhere simultaneously. There's multiple universes. And Niels Bohr basically went, that's crazy. What, how could you have made the imaginative leap so far in the first place and then been so conservative second time round? Was that rivalry, do you think? Yes, part of it. And uh, let me say another, another story about Niels Bohr. Many people have been looking for the theory of everything, which we think is string theory, but cannot be yet proven. And one time at Columbia University, a talk was given on Wolfgang Pauli's version of the theory of everything. Well, Bohr was not impressed. He said, huh. So he stood up at the end of the talk and said, we in the back are convinced that your version of the unified field theory is nonsense. It's wrong. It's crazy. But what divides us in the back is whether or not your theory is crazy enough. In other words, 
the real theory of everything has to be so crazy, it has eluded all attempts for 100 years. It has to be crazy because all the non-crazy theories were picked off one by one. So the theory of everything has to be crazy. So on one hand, Niels Bohr rejected the idea of the multiverse, but he was open to the idea that the ultimate theory of everything is going to be absolutely crazy. And string theory is both. String theory does have a multiverse, and string theory is definitely crazy, but it's the only game in town, and it's what I do for a living. And that's how I got into quantum uh, computers to begin with. I'm not a computer person. I'm a theoretical physicist. But I got into quantum computers because I realized that this may be the only way to quantitatively prove that string theory is correct. String theory exists in the multiverse. That is, we exist perhaps in parallel states, which are bizarre with new laws of physics, but we coexist with them. And the way to prove it is with a quantum computer. Now, can I ask that, the theory of everything you're looking for? One of the difficulties, and I guess this is almost an aesthetic question rather than a you know, scientific one. You know, you say, like, the Schrodinger equation is remarkably clean and remarkably generative. You know, it produces everything in a very sort of pleasingly concise way. All of chemistry. Right. All of chemistry is produced by the Schrodinger equation. Then you say... You know, the standard model, which we've had, you know, right up until string theory, was a mess. You know, it's it's kind of like, I think you have an analogy of sort of making a zoo animal by gluing a bit of a giraffe together and a bit of a zebra and a bit of, you know, whatever. And we like to think of scientific truths as being elegant. Do you think a final theory of everything, crazy though it might be, would have to be elegant to satisfy um you know, it's explanatory adequacy. Exactly. The standard model is one of the ugliest theories proposed in science. It has 36 quarks. It has three generations of particles. It has a whole slew of uh, Yang-Mills particles and Higgs bosons. It is the ugliest theory ever proposed in the history of science. So we don't think that it's the final theory. We think the final theory, those of us who work in string theory, we think the final theory is based on music. Music is based on vibrating strings. Each vibration corresponds to a particle. So the electron would vibrate this way, a proton vibrates this way, and a neutron vibrates this way, but they're nothing but musical notes. So physics is the harmonies that you can create on musical forms. Chemistry is the melodies that you can create out of these musical notes. The universe is a symphony of strings. And then the mind of God, the mind of God that Einstein wrote about for the last 30 years of his life would be cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That would be the mind of God. I mean, kind of amazing that, you know, I think it was the early modern scientists who said the music of the spheres were... Yeah, and we're coming back to that. We we think that all the particles we see around us are nothing but musical notes, melodies and and symphonies resonating throughout the universe. That is the only paradigm rich enough to explain the diversity of everything there is. 
You see, the atomic theory simply says there are atoms. It doesn't explain why. String theory says it's all music, music that obeys harmonies. And these harmonies are the laws of physics. And so the laws of physics are not simply coming up from out of space. The laws of physics have a rhyme or a reason. The laws of physics are nothing but the laws of music. Yes, that intrigues me. Towards the end of your book, you do say, you know, questions to, you know, stump a quantum physicist. And one of them you have that's most fertile, I think, is the question of, did God, if God exists, have a choice in the disposition of the universe? Which is obviously a slightly peculiar one, but are these the only musical laws, if you like, that are possible? Yes. Well, as Stephen Hawking used to say, if you want to see a physicist blush, then ask them one of these philosophical questions, including, did God have a choice in creating the universe? Einstein thought that there was no choice, that the universe had to be this way because any other way it would fall apart. And so if you take a look at the Schrodinger equation, we've tried to have alternatives to the Schrodinger equation for, for the last uh, almost the last century. Every time we deviate from the Schrodinger equation, the whole thing falls apart. All of a sudden, things can disappear, reappear, magic. All the known laws of physics are destroyed. And so we think that the Schrodinger equation is, in some sense, unique. Now, there are many solutions of this equation, but the equation itself is probably unique. All chemistry can be summarized in terms of the Schrodinger equation. So in that sense, God did not have a choice. But now we think that the Schrodinger equation, in turn, is nothing but one octave just one octave of a vibrating string that has many other octaves. And these octaves are the particles we find in the standard model. So we think that we're coming complete circle now, starting with the Schrodinger equation, where matter is based on vibrations, going to all the melodies you can create with these vibrations and, and getting the standard model of particle physics. Do you believe in God yourself? Well, I believe in the God of Einstein. Uh, that the universe, in some sense, uh, was not an accident, that there is a rhyme or reason to it, that the universe is not just chaotic, that there really is a rhyme or reason to the universe. It's mathematics. Is it possible, to, since mathematics underpins music and underpins physics, sort of, is it possible to conceive of a universal, multi, you know, multiversal corner of, of the multiverse where the laws of mathematics are different, or are those a sort of absolute bedrock? Well, there is a, a humorous novel, uh, what, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, uh, where there's a race of very intelligent beings that create a supercomputer to find the meaning of the universe. What is the meaning of everything? So this computer chugs and chugs and chugs and finally spits out an answer. The meaning of the universe is 42. Now, what a letdown after spending eons and money to create a theory of the universe, the meaning of the universe is a number 42. Well, that's one of the reasons why I got into this business. I was going to say, yes, they do set it. up another computer, don't they, to ask what the question was. Right. So, yes. So we have now uh, the quantum computer, the computer, the, the most powerful computer of all, the last computer. And now we can ask the question. <laughs> this question is not, is there a rhyme or reason of the universe, but is string theory correct? It turns out that we humans may not be smart enough 
to determine whether or not string theory is correct or not. Even the quark model, the simple quark model cannot be proven using the power of the mind. How do we calculate with the quark model? We use computers. So that's an admission that we're not smart enough to figure out how to calculate with the quark model. We use computers, and the computers very correctly say that the quark model is correct. I think the same thing will happen with string theory. The way to prove string theory may ultimately be with a quantum computer, because the human brain may not be smart enough to solve string theory. Sorry about that. But does string theory, I mean, take us into a sort of different realm of physics? If I'm understanding you rightly, it's not, there are aspects of it that aren't, if you like, modelable, testable. You know, it can't be falsified in the way that for a very long period of time, we kind of thought that was what scientists were doing. You know, they'd, they'd come up with things that were somehow empirically verifiable. Is it right that if string theory is correct, there are aspects of it that are beyond empirical verification? Not quite. You see, we are the lowest octave of the string. So the string, string theory does predict uh, the quarks, neutrons, protons, and so on and so forth. That is a solution of string theory. You and me, the laws of chemistry, Schrodinger, all of that is one vibration, one octave of the string. But the string has other octaves. It has higher octaves. And that's where the critics come in. And the critics say, aha, you're predicting particles that we haven't seen before. But that's because our machines are not powerful enough to, to create the next octave. The next octave of the string was found at the Big Bang. The Big Bang, in some sense, was a time when all the musical notes were, were created. But the universe has cooled down since then, and we don't hear these higher vibrations anymore. That's where quantum computers may come in. Quantum computers may fill the gap. They may show us that, in principle, it's possible to recreate the Big Bang when all the musical notes were resonating. It's possible mathematically, using the power of quantum computers, to show that string theory is correct, that these higher octaves really do exist, and these higher octaves were only heard at the instant of the Big Bang. We don't hear them anymore, but they're there, and we need them in string theory. So I think that's one of the reasons why I got interested in, string, in quantum computers, because of the fact that how do you prove string theory is correct when the human mind is not smart enough to solve the theory? Well, do what we do with the quirk model. Put it in the computer. And hopefully the answer is not 42. Well, <laughs> I hope so. You do talk about how, as far as we know, beyond the event horizon of a black, black hole, you said you know this is something that quantum computers might be able to model. But you say that the laws of physics, even the quite sophisticated quantum laws of physics, as we know them, probably start to get a bit hinky in there. Does that come to be a kind of, if you like, a hard limit on what quantum computers can model? Well, there's something called the Planck energy. The Planck energy is the ultimate energy of the universe. Uh, it is 10 to the uh, 29 power. That's a huge number, but that is the energy of the Big Bang. That is the energy of string theory. That's the ultimate energy of the universe itself. It's the energy of a black hole. It's the energy of the Big Bang. It's the energy of the string. So we have the Planck energy, but it's way beyond anything that we can create on the planet Earth. That's why we have to use pure mathematics, because 
Planck energy is a true home. The true home of string theory is the Planck energy, the energy of the Big Bang, the energy of a black hole. That's where the full power of string theory comes to play. But we humans only exist at tiny energies, energies of, of a hydrogen bomb. That's about it. That's all we can muster on the planet Earth is the energy of a hydrogen bomb, which is puny compared to the Big Bang. But I think that because we have quantum computers, we may eventually use it to prove the next octave of the string. We think the next octave of the string could be dark matter. Dark matter is invisible, yet it makes up most of the universe. It's very embarrassing that most of the universe is dark, dark matter, and we don't know what it is. We think dark matter is nothing but the next octave of the string. And do we know what any of its qualities are, apart from the fact that it obviously has some sort of gravitational effect and we can detect it that way? Uh, it's invisible. If I held dark matter in my hand, it would be invisible. If I dropped it, it would go right to the floor, right through the center of the earth and go to China. It would be re reverse direction in China because of gravity and it would come back and I would grab it here in New York City. And so dark matter is bizarre. It's strange, but get used to it. It exists. Most of the universe is dark. So what is dark matter? We think it's nothing but the next octave, the next octave of the string. Another question that it's a sort of slightly technical one, but when Einstein and Bohr were having their great disagreement, there was what Einstein thought was the great slapdown for Bohr was to say, look, we have the quantum entanglement and spooky action at a distance. Doesn't that, the fact that quantum atoms that are in that are entangled can transmit their states to each other, if I'm understanding this rightly, isn't this something traveling faster than light? Now, you say in this that Bohr's sort of response was, look, it turns out this isn't something traveling faster than light because the information that travels is meaningless or random. Why does it matter whether or not it's random in terms of its violation or otherwise of the, of the idea that information can travel? Well, Star Trek fans love to debate this question because in Star Trek, they communicate with headquarters faster than the speed of light because they've colonized a good fraction of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy in turn is several hundred thousand light years across. And to communicate to headquarters over that distance requires subspace communication. Now, of course, there's no such thing as subspace communication. That's a Hollywood creation. But it then begins to beg the question, can you submit energy faster than the speed of light? And quantum entanglement says, in some sense, yes. In some sense, some things go faster than the speed of light. Einstein was wrong in that sense. Einstein thought that nothing could go faster than the speed of light. But the information that you send faster than the speed of light has a catch. The catch is it's random. In other words, you cannot send Morse code you cannot send uh, a physics textbook uh, with quantum entanglement faster than the speed of light. The information you send is nonsense. So Einstein has the last laugh. In other words, Einstein was wrong. Things can go faster than the speed of light. But what are these things? Random, chaotic, useless. And so in Star Trek, you cannot use this effect to communicate with Star Trek headquarters using this method. Sorry but about that, seems, that. But that seems quite an anthropocentric objection. If we're talking about a law of physics that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, why does the fact that it's 
it's random, i.e. useless to communication or humans or, or however you want to describe it. Is that not a, an objection that wouldn't really um, be fundamental to physics itself? Well, we like to use this example of a, of a gentleman who has a red sock and a green sock. And he puts a red sock on one day, and that means the other leg has a green sock, or green sock one day and red sock on the other. Well, let's say you meet this gentleman and you lift up his pants, and in, underneath his pants, the socks are red. Now, what is the color of his other sock? It must be green. But how fast did you know that? How fast did you know that the other foot had a green sock? Well, the answer is infinite. You infinitely quickly knew that because one sock was red, the other sock is green. And then Einstein would say, aha, there's something wrong. Information can't go faster than the speed of light. Well, information did go faster than the speed of light. You know that the other sock is green. But is that useful? No. It's totally irrelevant. It's a stupid, useless piece of information. You cannot send Morse code this way. Try to send Morse code by switching socks, and you realize very quickly you can't do it. And so that's the reason why, even though in principle, things can go faster than light, called entanglement, it is useless information. However, we do use it in quantum computers. Quantum computers do use the fact that you can submit information faster than the speed of light, but it is not usable. Sorry about that. No, that's a shame. Now, I remember reading very excitedly in James Glake's book about information theory that he said, you know, we can calculate how much information there is in the universe. And it is this you know, absolutely staggering number of bits. Mm -hmm. Does that aspect of information theory have to be modified in the light of our quantum understanding? I do you know, just replace bits with qubits and, and move on. Or does it, does it complicate that? Does it change it? Well, so far it doesn't change it until you go to wormholes. And then, of course, all bets are off because at that point you're talking about a theory of quantum gravity, which is string theory, but string theory is not developed enough for us to answer these questions. And so the, um, up to the question of wormholes, we thought we had a good understanding of this effect, that information can go faster than light. Einstein was wrong but the information is not usable. Morse code, the English language, you cannot send useful information faster than the speed of light. Now we have the possibility of wormholes, which are also solutions of string theory, which are allowed by Einstein's equations, and then you start to get into entanglement with wormholes. So that is still an object of debate. You can Google it right now. It's a very active line of research as to whether or not wormholes may allow travel faster than the speed of light? I don't think so, but these are open questions. These are questions at the cutting edge of science. Yeah. Now, I'm interested you that you, I mean, it would be your book, Physics the Impossible, for instance. You know, you talked about like invisibility cloaks, time travel, aliens, you know, trying to apply the serious lessons of physics to these very science fictional kind of quite showbizy speculations. I mean, was it an interest in those if you like, exciting science fictional questions that led you into physics? Or for you, are they a way of bringing, you know, just explaining and make, popularizing and making available to, you know, an audience of excited teenagers the really serious mathematical work you're doing? Well, for me, it all started when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, all the newspapers said that a great scientist had died 
And they said that on his desk was a book, a book of his unfinished manuscript that he could not finish. Well, I was fascinated by that. And so I looked up, who was this man who could not finish this book? What was in the book? Well, the man's name was Albert Einstein. And that book was to be the theory of everything. An equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God, unquote. Well, I was fixed. I was fascinated. I had to know what was in that book. And so I went to the library, and I tried to find out everything about Einstein and the unified field theory, and I found nothing, absolutely nothing. There was no popular book about the fourth dimension, about hyperspace, about black holes, about Einstein's work, nothing in the library. But there was science fiction. And I used to watch Flash Gordon on the TV every Saturday. And then I began to ask another question. If I don't get the unified field theory, then what does modern theory say about ray guns, about invisibility, about, about uh, interstellar travel? All those things that you see in the movies. And I began to realize that, that the two passions of my life, that is the unified field theory on one hand and science fiction on the other, they were related to each other. That in order to understand science fiction, you have to understand physics and the basis of physics. And so I begin to realize that the two disciplines that I love, science fiction and theoretical physics, are in some sense bound together. To understand science fiction, you have to understand theoretical physics. And so my job was to try to then convey all this fascination to children. And luckily, a lot of children email me. They're between the ages of 10 and 18. They read my books, and they want to know about time travel. They want to know about ray guns and extraterrestrial intelligence and different kinds of civilizations in outer space. And that, I think, is one way to hook these kids, to hook them, to get them interested in advanced physics. And what was the science fiction that you loved when you growing up? Was it all television or I'm wondering like if you're someone who's got a very hard science cast of mind you know do you like hard science fiction like the sort of Larry Niven stuff where they really are trying to work on putting if you like proper science in well if you read the history of George Lucas and Star Wars you realize that Star Wars is based on Flash Gordon he said that after the Vietnam he wanted Flash Gordon and yeah when you go back to the original Flash Gordon series it's all there it's all there in the original Flash Gordon series. Ray guns, invisibility, uh, extraterrestrial civilizations, nuclear energy, all of that is in the, the early Flash Gordon series, which was then wholesale put into Star Wars. And so when I watch science fiction, well, when I watch science fiction, sometimes today I would count the number of mistakes they made. But after a while, I realized that's no fun. Of course, you're going to violate a few laws of physics, and counting the ones that are violated does not make it more enjoyable. And so you sort of have to blink a bit every time another law of physics is violated. But it was that it was science fiction that, that made you start to study physics seriously then. That's right. And now that we have nanotechnology, I realize that even Harry Potter, that a lot of the things featured in Harry Potter actually are within the laws of physics. We're going to have nanotechnology uh, in the coming decades, 
And nanotechnology allows you to change one thing into another. And that, of course, is the basis of Harry Potter. And so now I realize that even Harry Potter does not violate all the known laws of physics. When you were growing up, you said, obviously, Einstein was the first great inspiration to you. As, you know, as we mentioned, you, you've met an enormous number of other really distinguished physicists and, and you're, you've, got, you've got a sort of spe- special section in your acknowledgements where you say thank you to the following Nobel Prize winners you know, and, and the others. Who have been the scientists who you've worked with or met who've made the greatest impression on you and what, what has it been about them? Well, once I gave a talk at Aspen in Colorado, which is where theoretical physicists go to recharge their batteries, and uh, Richard Feynman was in the audience, as well as Mary Gelman, two great Nobel Prize winners. And I gave a talk, an introductory talk on string theory. And Feynman was famous for putting down <laughs> rival theories. He was a master of the put down. One phrase, one slight joke would just send the whole audience laughing and humiliate the speaker. Well, I was a little bit apprehensive because I was talking to string theory to Richard Feynman, who was a critic of string theory. He didn't quite think that it was philosophically his cup of tea, but he was in the audience. And so later, after I finished my talk, he came up to me. And I said, okay, here it goes. Here it comes. And then he said, this talk was one of the most beautiful talks I've ever heard. Gorgeous. Maybe not right. Maybe it's all wrong, but it was gorgeous. And then I began to realize that, well, the power of beauty will sway some of the greatest minds. That maybe Richard Feynman did not, look the, did not like the algebra. He did not like all the mathematics that went into strength theory. But the thrust of what I was doing was music, reducing all of theoretical physics to music, which is what I was doing. And he said, this is one of the most elegant talks I've ever heard. So that was, that was rather encouraging knowing that even though I'm wrong, or even though I could be wrong, that the theory had emotional power to resonate within the human mind. Has the arrival of quantum theory changed the sort of people who do physics, I'm wondering? Because it's so much now in the territory of philosophy. You know, I'm, I'm thinking there's kind of classical mechanics you'd think might look for people who are you know, quite precise and mathematically minded, which I'm sure is still... <laughs> great valuable virtues but it's all so much more wibbly wobbly since you know the sort of schrodinger Bohr generation has it changed the sort of people who do physics well i think that uh there's a dialectical relationship between experiment verification and pure mathematics and speculation sometimes one is ahead of the other so throughout the 20th century experiments were racing ahead giving us all the chemical elements, but physics was lagging behind, okay? We had no understanding of the laws of chemistry. Then we got quantum mechanics, and then it flipped the other way. All of a sudden, we were able to create universes that didn't exist yet. We were able to show that these universes could exist because they were solutions of the Schrodinger equation. And so all of a sudden, theory became the leading factor and not experiment. Now we're in a limbo a limbo where we have string theory, which is fantastic but unprovable using the current uh, experimental technology, while experiment is still plodding along, trying to catch up. 
We do not have a replacement for the Large Hadron Collider, meaning that we won't be able to do a direct test of string theory. Everything has to be indirect from now on. And it does mean that physics is going to be racing into philosophy. We're going to be talking about the anthropic principle and parallel universes and all these things which are highly speculative because there's no experiment to guide our way. In some sense, we have lost our way as theoretical physicists because there's no experiment driving the field forward. But hey, get used to it. That's just the way it is. So we're, we don't have atom smashers that are powerful enough to prove the theory. So we're going to have to speculate. And I think that's a good thing. Kaku, thank you very much indeed for your time. My pleasure. <laughs>